This morning we're going to be finishing off Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that he gave to his disciples. Uh, Early on in the book of Matthew, the first block of teaching that he gives, and he's taught them a lot about and taught us a lot about the kingdom of God and what it will mean to be a follower of Jesus. And then he closes off uh, with the words that we'll look at today from uh, chapter 7, verses 13 to 29, for anyone who wants to follow along. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. At the end of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus has taught us what the kingdom of heaven is like, how to live in it. He's taught us to turn the other cheek. He's taught us to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He's taught us about the heart of the law, that it's not just enough to um, not do the wrong things, but to think about our hearts and whether we desire the wrong things. Jesus has repeatedly invited us to look at our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. As I said, he brought us to the heart of the law. Love God and love your neighbour. The heart of the law that it's not just enough to not do the wrong things, as I noted before. He's brought us to the heart of the worship of God, that 
if we do all of these things so that people will think, oh, how spiritual and how good is he, there will be no reward. But if we worship God because we love him, we have the love of God in return. We have his rewards that he talked about. We talked a bit about what those rewards might be. But the greatest reward is that we have the hope that we'll spend eternity with him. Our Father who loved us. And Jesus has taught us all of these things. He's taught us how to pray. He's taught us to put our trust in God and not worry about you know, things like you know, what we will eat and what we will wear. He's taught us that God is a good God, a good Father, and He knows how to give good gifts to His children. And as Jesus comes to the end of His sermon now, having taught all these things, He closes with a warning. Don't miss out. Don't go away thinking, oh, that was a great sermon, and then not actually live it. Not actually take what Jesus has said as, we should live this way because we trust the one who has taught us this way. As he finishes, Jesus makes it clear that he is not just a good teacher with some good ideas about God. He makes it clear that he's not just a king, the Messiah that the people had been waiting for. Jesus makes it clear he is the only one who can show us the way to the kingdom of heaven. Not just one good teacher among many, the only one who knows the way. The only one who can offer eternal life. And he begins with a warning that his way is not the most popular way. His road is not the most popular road. He begins with this image of, which was popular in his time as it is now of life being a journey. We hear this all the time these days. Somebody, so-and-so is on a journey and they're going, you know, who knows where they'll go and the journey is as important as the destination. And Jesus says, well, the journey is important but the destination is, is the most important thing. There are only two destinations, Jesus says. There's destruction and there's life. Wide is the gate and broad is the road. This big, wide way that everybody by default starts on. That the whole world follows. And it's very, very popular. But it ends in destruction. And then to the side, there's a narrow gate. That only, Jesus says, only a few find. And down that way is a narrow path with not so many people on it as the other road. The broad way encompasses dozens of religions, dozens of secular ideologies. There's hundreds of options that don't lead to God. And Jesus tells us to take a different path. Jesus calls us to take that narrow path. And all of us who've made that decision to follow Jesus would know that the path that we follow is different to the path our family and friends who don't believe are following. That the way that we go sometimes 
might steer us away from those people in a little bit. might steer us away from finding ourselves in certain places, indulging in certain things. Taking our way means that there can be conflict because our way is different to the popular way. In fact, following Jesus' way is becoming increasingly unpopular in our world that although they might tout the virtues of treat others as you want to be treated, they might have been raised with more knowledge of the way that Jesus uh, has taught us than they even realise. We live in a society that's by and large rejecting that heritage, that sees faithfulness as bigotry, that sees holding to any kind of absolute truth as somehow being you know, proud and, and being uh, intolerant because there can be many truths. But if we say that there are no absolute truths, that's an absolute truth in itself. But that's only a side point. To follow Jesus' way, we need to trust that his way is right. We need to trust the one who has told us that this is the way, that this is the one that leads to life. When going Jesus' way, when following him requires us to count the cost and go on, when it brings division, when it brings animosity, when it brings persecution, are we still willing to follow it, trusting the one who told us this is the way, this is where you find life? Jesus tells us his is the way that leads to life but only a few find it. Now, it's worth um, getting ahead around that terminology that only a few find this path, Jesus says. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Are only a few saved? Verses like this have been picked up by some over the years to say, uh, the wide road is like the broader church and our church is the only one that actually leads you to God. That this particular teaching or that particular teaching is the only way that you can get to God. If you don't use the King James Bible, you're not going on the way to God. That's a real thing. I got a tract about that just last year. If you don't Personally, if, if every single person doesn't speak tongues in your church, then you're on, the, you're on the broad road. We've got the narrow road. The Jehovah's Witnesses famously said that you know, they were the only ones who had the true version of the gospel and they were going to be the 144,000 from, from Revelation and they were going to be the few that found eternal life. And... They've changed that a little bit now that there's more than 144,000 J-dubs, but that's, um, that's the ideas that we find sometimes, that people take this, only a few find it, and, say, and try to minimise, so, so God's only going to save a couple, you know, 100,000 people out of all of human history. But Jesus did also say, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus talks about the road being one that few find, he's talking about in comparison to that broad road. Even today, 
even if every single person who's filled out on a census form that they are Christian do truly believe and have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's one billion out of about seven billion people in our world. It's still less, isn't it? It's still the lesser way. It's still the one that less people choose. And when Jesus talks about few in this passage, it's in contrast to the great many who choose any other way beside Jesus. Jesus didn't come to die so that he could artificially minimise the number of people who would be allowed into heaven. He wanted as many as possible to be saved. God doesn't desire that any would perish, but that they'd repent and believe. But in every generation, more have rejected Jesus than have chosen him. Now on the way to the kingdom, Jesus warns us that we're not to listen to every guide, but he warns us against false prophets who he describes as wolves coming among the pen of sheep, wearing sheep's clothing. And they claim to teach the truth, but they seek to lead us away to destruction. There's been false prophets in every generation that have taught a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus. We had, uh, even in Bible times, how many arguments did Paul have against the circumcision group? They said, you need to do all of these things from the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul says, this is not the gospel. The gospel is not that we are saved by works, but that we're saved by grace. How do we spot these wolves in sheep's clothing? How do we recognise good teaching? How can anybody, no matter how much they know about Jesus, no matter how, many, uh, how much time they've read, spent in the Bible, know how to tell good teaching from bad teaching? Jesus tells us, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of the life of the one teaching. We need to examine their fruit. Now, I think we need to be clear here, their fruit is not just their actions. Uh, that, you know, Jesus says a good person can't bear bad fruit, a bad person can't bear good fruit. But he also describes the false prophet as a wolf in sheep's clothing. They can give the appearance of being good for a while. A false prophet, a false teacher can put on a show of humility, can put on a show of godliness but if we examine their character over time who they are will come out likewise a good person a good tree can't bear bad fruit and yet the new testament clearly teaches that all of us who are christians do still sin and anyone who says they are without sin the truth is not in them it's possible that a Christian can make a mistake, can get something wrong, but over the course their character will show. We need to look for the fruit. And when people come and give us advice about God and they teach this is what God is like and this is what we should do, we need to weigh it up against the person who is teaching us and whether they're teaching us the same gospel that Jesus taught. 
We need to weigh it up against their life. And it's like how if if your GPS tells you to turn off the road and drive into a ditch, I hope that we have the sense not to listen to it. That we still need to use our minds, use our brains and follow the good way, the narrow road that Jesus has us on. Don't accept any false gospel. There's only one way to be saved, only one way to have our sins forgiven. It's through Jesus, by his grace, received through faith. And as Jesus closes out his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something that was hugely unexpected to his audience, something that they would not have seen coming, something that we can jump over a little bit, not realising how incredible this claim is. Jesus tells us that he is the judge, that on that last day he is the one who decides who is in or out of the kingdom of God. And if we're going sort of chronologic through, chronologically through the Bible, this is the biggest claim he's made yet at this point. And his disciples have to wrestle with, hang on, this, he's claiming to be a lot more than just a teacher here. At this point in time, we can see why they were staggered at the end of the sermon that he taught as somebody who had authority, who was not like the teachers of the law. Here he is claiming that he will be there on the last day, deciding who is saved, who is in the kingdom of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I think it's probably fair to say that this passage of the New Testament, of Scripture, has cost me more sleep than any other. I don't know about you. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Is there anything more tragic than thinking that you're saved and it's not true. When we come to these verses, it can be so confronting. How can there be any kind of assurance, any kind of trust that we are saved if there are going to be some who think that but at the last day prove them to be wrong? And, and look at these people. They've prophesied in his name in their name they've driven out in jesus name they've driven out demons they've performed many miracles i haven't done half of that if they're not in what hope have i got who are these people who on the last day will be saying lord lord as though they claim jesus as their lord but they're not actually saved i mean there are some people that you can, you can sort of easily see it. You look through history and you have the popes who claim, not, not all of them, I'm not having a go at all of the popes, but some of the popes who claim to be the leader of God's church, 
And meanwhile, they were siphoning all of this money that people were giving to the glorification of God to build a massive palace for their mistresses. Um, their life shows, their fruit shows that they're probably going to be in that number. You have the false teachers. That's the context that Jesus has just gone out of talking about these false prophets that are going out as wolves in sheep's clothing and are going to lead people astray. They might be some of those on the last day saying, Lord, Lord. But is that all it is? How do we know? How can we have any assurance that that's not going to be us on that last day? As I've reflected on this passage over the last couple of weeks, well, actually over the whole time I've been preparing this series because I knew this ended it and I've been wrestling with this in the lead up to it. I think by the grace of God he's shown me something in these verses. What is the basis of these people's hope that they're in the kingdom of heaven? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus, I should be in the kingdom because of what I've done. The basis of their hope is what they've done for God, their works and their deeds, impressive though they are, seemingly spiritual though they are. Their hope is built on what they've done. But what is Jesus' judgment on them? I never knew you. They might have done lots of works, but there was no relationship with Jesus. There was no love for God. It's all about that relationship, that love for God. Everything through this whole Sermon on the Mount has been about that we love God and love our neighbour out of that love for God. These people may have done great deeds, but their hearts were far from Him. And we've seen that even through the Old Testament. Jesus sent His prophets to say to the people like, Yeah, you're technically doing all the sacrifices and the things in the temples that you're supposed to be doing, but your hearts are far from me. And that you're missing the point. And because there was no love for God and love for neighbour in their hearts, their lives are full of this habitual lawlessness. Away from me, you doers of evil. And the word that is used is one of a habitual practice of continuing to do evil. And so this is still a scary passage. This is not the sort of passage you read out at a funeral or uh, at a hard time in your life. But the question that I think it asks us is where is our hope? Is our hope in what we've done or is our hope in what Jesus has done for us? Is our hope that God in his just incomparable love chose us, sent Jesus to die for us while we were still his enemies so that for all who would believe in him, put their hope in him, 
love him in response to the incredible love that he has shown us, we will have the internal, eternal inheritance, the kingdom of God. The gospel is that we're saved by God's grace. We respond with love to the God who loved us when we deserved judgment, when we deserved separation from God, when we deserved death and hell. He instead chose love. And if we don't respond to that love with love, there is, there's something wrong there, isn't there? If God has loved us so much, then we trust him. Like the little child uh, in the sort of passage Jesus spoke about last week, who can humbly come and ask their father for anything, knowing that their father will give them good gifts. And likewise, if we ask God for anything, he might not always get exactly what we ask for, but we can know with 100% certainty that he knows how to give good gifts. So Jesus closes his sermon then with this famous parable of the wise and the foolish builders. If you hear these words of mine and put them into action, you're like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the waves came and the, the rains came and the, the flash flood came and the house stood. But the foolish man built his house on the sand. That's the one who doesn't put into action my words. And when these things come up, the rains and the flash flood, the house falls with a great crash. As we finish our sermon this morning, I want to ask, put what into action? If you hear these words of mine and put them into action, what do we have to put into action to build our house on the rock? Or to go back to the previous example, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to do the will of the Father in heaven? What does it mean to hear, God, hear Jesus' words and put them into action, to build that house on the rock? Will we fall with a crash if one time in our life, after we believe in Jesus, our eye or our hand leads us into sin, as Jesus talked about back in chapter 6. If sometimes we catch ourselves worrying about food and clothes and money that Jesus has warned us against, will we fall in a heap? If sometimes we find it hard to love our enemy, and maybe on one or two occasions we respond to anger with anger, will our life fall in a great crash? Is it, after all of that, actually about what we do, about getting all of the works right, about having a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, as we saw back in week one? Jesus taught us to live a life that he's described in these chapters, to love our enemies, 
do good to those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to treat others as we want to be treated, and to love and seek God first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But all throughout his sermon, there has been grace. There have been reminders that we will sometimes get some of these things wrong. That following the will of God does not somehow mean that we will suddenly be perfect. That building our life on the rock doesn't mean that we might sometimes never be shaken. But just that we won't crash. He's taught us that the poor in spirit are blessed. For ours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they need God's help. And don't think they're strong enough to do it on their own. Jesus taught us how to pray. And in that prayer, he taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Because he knew we would need to pray that. Because he knew we would get it wrong. And he taught us last week, as we saw, to ask God for help, knowing that we would need it. Having seen this life that Jesus called us to and realising that we can't do that on our own, that we can ask, that we can seek, that we can knock and it will be opened unto you, that God will give us the help that we need. He's taught us that God is our loving Father who gives good gifts. So let's love Jesus with our heart and mind and strength and soul. Let's seek him first in his kingdom and his righteousness then we can worship him every day. You know, not necessarily breaking out into worship songs in the middle of your workplace. Um, that, that may go well, it may not. Uh, but we can, we can be talking with God, thanking him, asking him for help and just putting our trust in him every day. And let's love our neighbour as ourselves. That's a tough call. And we won't always love our neighbours as much as we love ourselves because sometimes it's easy to not, you know, not love our neighbours as much as we should and sometimes it's easy to love ourselves a bit more than we should. But let's put our trust on the only firm foundation, the only rock that will stand, which is the love and the grace of Jesus and what he did for us at the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, may we always put our hope in you. May we take these claims that you have made in this sermon, that you are more than just a good teacher, but that you are the saviour, you are the judge, that you are the only one who can lead us to eternal life. And so may we put our hope in you and build our lives on you by trusting and knowing that when we get things wrong, we can pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And knowing and trusting that when we can't do it in our own strength, we can ask and seek and knock. Let us come to you in humility each and every day, knowing 
that you love us, that you long to show us forgiveness and grace and that you can use us to show that forgiveness and grace and love to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.